following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They are neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which... And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." This is the word of the Lord. For the last several months, we've been going uh, verse by verse, passage by passage through the Sermon on the Mount, um, chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew's Gospel. This is perhaps, I've said this a million times already, perhaps the most prolific statement, the the most prolific discourse that's ever been given in human human history. And Jesus sits up on this hillside and, and he's speaking to his disciples and he's telling them essentially what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven now. What does it look like to be kingdom people navigating through a broken world? Now, as we come to this passage today, we, we might find what is perhaps the biggest contrast between people who, who are living according to the kingdom of this earth and people who live according to the kingdom of heaven. And that contrast is this, that king, people, kingdom people have an absence of anxiety and worry. I just finished reading a book by Edwin Freeman, who's a, a psychologist, a family counselor, leadership counselor, a former rabbi, um, and, and he kind of, after decades of doing his work, uh, of assessing and helping families navigate through some of the complexities of their lives, he comes to the conclusion that perhaps the largest ill, the greatest ill, societal ill within our, within our culture is the fact that we are a chronically anxious society. If you step back for a moment, because it's hard to see when you're in the midst of it, but if you take a step back for a minute, you can actually see that this is, could very well be the truth, that we are a constant ball of worry as a society, but also it trickles down to an individual level, that, that there's this constant droning buzz, this hum of worry and anxiety that's going on, and, and if anything, 2020 and COVID has expressed this all the more, right? It's been magnified, right? Now, 
Like we're scared to touch each other's hands, step into each other's homes. Some of us are afraid to make eye contact even. Right, this, this, this worry, this anxiety, which and it's multifaceted too. It's not just the, the health. Now in Matthew 6, when Jesus is saying here, here's the key distinctive of kingdom people is that they don't worry. In fact, he'd even say that there's no need to worry. There's no need to be anxious. Now when Jesus says this, we have to realize this is not a flippant hakuna matata thing. Right, no worries for the rest of your days. It's a problem-free philosophy. That's not it. It's not that Jesus is turning up Bobby McFerrin's hit, Don't Worry, Be Happy. A song that he wrote might want to take it note for note. This is not a, a thoughtless, blind leap of faith. Nor is it Jesus standing before you as some sort of a drill sergeant saying, get over it, you wimps. That, that's not the way Jesus approaches the problem of anxiety that, that many of us, if not all of us, face on a regular basis. And the way that Jesus deals with this, this issue of anxiety is that he grounds us in reality. And as he grounds us in reality, he wants to go to work at the heart level. Now our culture doesn't have the tools to do this. Our culture has a bunch of quick fixes, has the ability to offer behavior modifications and surface level change that manages anxiety, but doesn't eliminate it, doesn't put an end to it. Now some of the things, these things are helpful and good, right? Th things like therapy and medication, meditation, prayer, whatever it might be, right? Th those things are helpful, but in themselves, those things are not a solution all by themselves. It's a topical treatment, much like Orogel. You put Orogel on a toothache, right? You're, you're going to get momentary relief from the ache, the throb, the pain, but underneath that, your tooth is probably still rotting, Right, you still have an issue that's going on and on, even with that surface level treatment. Now what Jesus wants to do with us this morning is go to work. He wants to stick his hands in our mouth, so to speak. Get, get his hands on our heart and do a, a root canal. Because anxiety is counterproductive. It's antithetical to the kingdom life, the life of flourishing and the good life that Jesus intends to give us. Because here's the thing, anxiety will rob you of joy, compassion, generosity, the ability to be vulnerable. It'll take away all of your peace and contentment. But if you sit still in the dentist chair, if you let Jesus get kind of invasive for a moment, he's gonna go to work on your heart. And he can offer you the end of anxiety. Now, as we open up this passage here, it's very clearly about anxiety. Three times it says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Now, as we move into this, we, we need to ask this question, what are we talking about when we talk about anxiety? Now, I, I realize this is a, a sermon that I wish I had like, five more weeks to unpack this and kind of dig in in different veins and nuances of things, but I'm, I'm gonna do my best to fly over. So what is anxiety when we talk about it? I think anxiety is easier to describe than it is to define. Anxiety is like living in a haunted house, like one of those spook houses, right? You pay money to go to and people jump out from behind the walls to scare you, you know, around Halloween time. 
It's like living constantly in a haunted house, that you're, you're going about your business, and, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking that something is lurking behind a corner. Something is waiting to jump up and attack you or to bring some sort of disruption. It, it's, it's not so much the fear of that thing, because you know, right, if you go to a haunted house, it's just some goofy dude with a chainsaw that doesn't actually have a chain on it. It's not really that scary, but, but the fear of the possibility that something could go wrong is really what drives our anxiety that our life might get disrupted maybe a minor or even a major way. It threatens the ideal, the, the, the plan, the, the want that we have for our lives. Anxiety, that, that's kind of the feel of anxiety. Well, what causes anxiety? Anxiety can be invoked by a myriad of, of different real or perceived dangers or threats. So in some ways, like you might feel anxiety over legitimate things. Like somebody, I don't know, here's an example. Somebody walks into a grocery store and they've got a gun, right? You're probably gonna feel anxiety stir up in that moment, probably rightly so. There's a legitimate threat there. But it can also occur when we have perceived threats. Threats that may not actually be entirely uh, real or grounded in reality. And as these things, whether real or perceived, these threats, these dangers, come up in our life, typically, most of us are dealing with multiple of these threats going on at once, which only compounds the, the, the amount of anxiety that we feel in our lives. It could be we feel anxious about our health, right, COVID. We're washing our hands all the time. You, you go to the grocery store and you got like, somebody who's wearing like three masks and then a visor shield over their face, right? It's like overkill. Afraid to touch hands. You can see this in your professional life. It's like you're afraid of the competition's gonna beat you out. You're afraid, you know, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to survive. My small business is gonna keep on going. I don't know if I'm gonna make that promotion to be able to provide for my family. I don't even know if I'm gonna have a job tomorrow. And you feel that anxiety. Or even in the relational dimension. Right, you've got this turmoil with your best friend. You feel like you're on the outs with them. It's like, what am I gonna do if I lose this person in my life? Or maritally. Right, your, your marriage is constantly under stress and it's just like, we can take it a day at a time and that's it that I know of. Right? I, don't, I can't see what the future is like and that causes anxiety and fear and stress or, or parenting. Right? You never know, like your kid might come home with a face tattoo, go to jail the next day, I don't know. Causes anxiety. Or this week we got a new president. And depending on what you think about that, that could either be really reassuring for you or it could cause some anxiety. Or, or, what, or in regards to your lifestyle and becoming a disciple of Jesus, you could get this anxiety, this fear of, what is it gonna cost me if I really decide to follow Jesus? Like if I really submit to him as Lord and Savior, what kind of implication does that have on my relationships? What kind of relationship does that have on my, on my money or my time? And so we get this anxiety over these things that, that we try to control. Now, I, I was pinpointing here, the most common anxiety-producing topic is that of money. I think we can all say that. Right? Hopefully, repentance after last week's sermon on money has led you to go to your budget and, and rethink and reimagine what that should look like, right? To, to put your money underneath the lordship of Jesus. And unless you're Daddy Warbucks here, there's a, probably a pretty good chance when you go and you look at your budget and you think, okay, Got a 10% to God because that's the, the baseline of biblical generosity. And, and then the government wants 
25% of my income, which seems strange proportionally, but I think it's so weird. Like, people, like, get, get feisty about, oh, God's so greedy, and he wants 10%, and he's the one who gave you literally everything you have, and then you, without even thinking about it, Uncle Sam takes 25% of your income, and it's like, you don't bat your eye at it. It's so weird. And unless your daddy Warbucks here, you're probably gonna feel the margins in your budget sort of shrink a little bit. And you're wondering, how am I gonna live? How am I gonna feed my family? How am I gonna get clothes to wear that don't just wear out all the time? Now this is precisely the mentality that Jesus addresses here in verses 25, uh, in verse 25 of Matthew chapter six. And it's strategically placed here coming right after talking about money, and then he goes into the topic of anxiety. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what, will you, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus says, don't, don't give in to anxiety. Don't be anxious because anxiety is a leech. Anxiety is a leech. Anxiety will drain more life out of you just by being anxious than actually living your life. That's how it works. It's anti-flourishing. And one of the ways that it works and causes the life to drain out of us is by messing with our headspace. It clutters your head. It makes you neurotic and obsessive, makes you feel overwhelmed. And the more that you feel anxiety, right, whether, whether it's a psychological thing, you feel it kind of in your gut, in your, in, your, uh, in your heart, the more you experience this and the more that you hold on to it, the more that you try to deal with it within your own strength or even in, in the suggestions that the culture has to deal with it, the more it becomes a physical thing. Like it becomes a physiological thing. It's not just psychological anymore. It becomes a physiological thing where it affects your body. This is why you might have problems sleeping at night. This might be why you have gut issues. This might be why you've got high blood pressure. It's because anxiety has worked its way into our life and has become this constant stress. It takes a physical toll on your body, right? Your shoulders get tensed up. You see it in your face. And eventually, if if you don't deal with it, it's gonna cause your adrenal glands to blow up and you're gonna crash and burn. Now, I've, I've counseled enough anxious people to know that if you're dealing with anxiety, the last thing you want to hear is somebody say, just stop being anxious, right? Because that only perpetuates the cycle of anxiety. Because now, not only am I anxious about the stuff that I was anxious about before, now I'm anxious about you telling me not to be anxious. And so it's just this cycle that keeps on going, yet Jesus, when he tells, tells us to, to don't be anxious, he does so not with some sort of accusatory, finger-pointing, drill sergeant mentality, but with a tenderness. And when that cycle keeps going, it makes you feel like you're out of control, your life is in a tailspin. You feel vulnerable, you feel helpless, which brings us to the essence of anxiety. At the root of anxiety, here's what's going on. It's a desire to control the uncontrollable. That's what your anxiety surfaces from. It's a desire to control that which you can't control, that which you weren't intended to control. Now, the secular world wants us to think that we're just reasonable creatures. Like, 
Somehow it's been embedded on us, if, if we've evolved from a single cell organism somehow, that we've come to have this rational way of being in our life. And if that's the case, then anxiety is just kind of par for the course. That's kind of what we have to deal with. But, but if we are truly logical and reasonable creatures, why would we try to control the uncontrollable? It doesn't make sense, by definition. And Jesus suggests to us how illogical it is for us to try to control the uncontrollable here in verse 27. He says, and which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? He's saying your anxiety, it's not gonna get you ahead. Your anxiety is not doing anything to help you move forward. Not only that, but if you are somehow able to manage the anxiety from one day and really can contain it and get some sort of ownership over that, if we were able to miraculously do that somehow, tomorrow would come with its own troubles. Right, that's what he's talking about in verse 34. Sufficient for each day is its own with its troubles. Therefore, Anxiety cannot be rooted in logic. It can't be. It's illogical by definition. But rather, anxiety is rooted in desire. See, our desire is that we want to control our lives. We want to have the steering wheel. We want to grip it tight. We want to determine where we're going, what our goals are, how we're going to get there, not only our life, but the lives of other people. You see this with your spouse, with your kids. Right, your MC, oh my gosh. You see that in MC, like what is this bozo doing? Let me just take control of his life for him. We see this all over the place. Right? It's a desire to control our lives and the lives of others. Now, anxiety kicks in with a vengeance when that desire is frustrated. When that desire to control your life or other people's lives is foiled, right? Whether you're sitting in the doctor's office and they come out and they tell you of a, of a bad diagnosis that you, you didn't expect on hearing, or you lose a family member, you lose your job, right? All of a sudden, all of the illusion of control in your life just gets yanked out like a rug from underneath of you. Reality comes crashing down and screams, it may be in a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Obnoxious way that you're not in control. And guess what? You've never been in control. You've always been vulnerable. You've always been insecure. And when those crises come, right, when those circumstances arise, it just puts that in front of us. That's the reality. That, that to think otherwise is an illusion. We are not in control. I spent my week uh, re reading and rereading a sermon that uh, Pastor Tim Keller preached about this. Literally changed my life. And I'm, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm pretty much hijacking everything that he said here. So if you think this is a good sermon, you should email him instead of me. Tim Keller, in coming to sort of this conclusion of like, hey, we're not in control, he says, here's the wonderful truth beneath this, though. Christianity has this way of, of telling you what's wrong with you in a way that's positive. It's interesting. So it's not just that the Bible says, hey, this is bad, knock it off. But the Bible actually traces it back, like why are we doing the things that we're doing? It points, points us to where this desire comes from. And, and Tim Keller goes to this quote from uh, the philosopher Blaise Pascal. And he says, the greatness of man is so evident that is even proved by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king 
except a disposed king. Who is happy at not being king except for a disposed king? Do you see what he's saying there? It's like the reason why you want control, the reason why it frustrates you when you don't have it is because you were actually meant to have control, that you were meant to to reign and rule with Christ. Tim Keller says that we were meant to be kings on earth and rule with God. And you see this in Eden, right? Go back to Genesis chapter one, chapter two, and, and three before it gets messy. God creates Adam and Eve. He breathes his life in them. He creates them in his image to take on some sort of responsibility within creation. And in doing so, he makes them under rulers of God. That he gives some of his authority to them and says, now you go and exercise dominion. Fill the earth, subdue it, create, multiply, rule the earth. But when we get to Genesis chapter three, something tragic happens. See, this beautiful thing that they were designed to do to rule with God now gets perverted. Instead of ruling with God, they want to rule like God. They want to become God themselves and have that supernatural power to exercise the power that God has. And here we see in Genesis chapter three the first ever power grab, and it came in the form of yanking a fruit off the tree. See, the the inner voice of Adam and Eve in that moment was my will, my way. I'm in charge. I can do what God does. I can, if I just had a little bit more power, I could make sure that things are always gonna go well for me. And trying to become more than human, they become less than human. They become out of control, unstable. They lack a sense of security, right? It is exposed right away Right? They, they realize that they're naked and instead of being unashamed, now they're ashamed. Right? They have this anxiety about themselves. Something's wrong, something's shameful about me. That something is out of my control and unstable. And this mentality, this effect of sin continues to run through our society today. This is why anxiety is such an, an undesirable state to be in. Nobody wants to be an anxious person. Right? Contrary to popular belief, anxiety is not a fruit of the spirit. Nobody wants that. And yet we gravitate toward it. Now, culture offers a fix for it. I talked about this, sort of like the surface level fix, but, but there's another way that culture tries to deal with this. They say the way to gain stability, the way to make yourself secure is to accumulate for yourself more power, more control. They say to assert yourself. Prove your dominance, boost your self-esteem and your self-confidence, diversify your portfolio. So if something crashes in one arena, you got something to fall back on. Give yourself a cushion, right? Do all of these different things to prop yourself up, to give you the sense of security. But this is delusional. To borrow from the uh, philosophy of, uh, of Biggie Smalls, mo' money, mo' problems, right? Same thing with power, same philosophy. More power, more problems. It's gonna frustrate your life because all of these things that you feel responsibility for are eventually going to weigh down and guess what happens to the CEO executives who accumulate a lot of power? Guess what happens? Guess their state of life. Are they flourishing? No. They're, honestly, they're lucky if they don't end up committing suicide. 
Otherwise, if they, if they keep pressing through, they're gonna be burned out, they're gonna be worn down, ground down to nothing. That's the way culture wants to deal with. Jesus is a very different way of ad- addressing this issue of anxiety. Now, we have to understand, and I wish I had more time to do this, but I don't, and, and so I'm just gonna do a general sweep of this, and if you have questions afterward, come talk to me. But Jesus foundationally sees anxiety not as a personality issue, not as a mental health issue, not as a, a, a you know, personal t- trait, like it's not just part of being an Enneagram six. Jesus foundationally sees anxiety as a spiritual heart issue. Now that spiritual heart issue has a way of overflowing and spilling over into other areas of your life, and if you get a foothold, it's gonna keep grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, so then it makes you an anxious, a chronically anxious person, where it might be necessary for you then to seek treatment, to seek medication, right? I'm not against those things. But Jesus says, if you wanna get to the heart problem, if you wanna get to the root canal issue here, we have to go to the heart. And we see this in in verse 30 when Jesus says, you know, oh, you of little faith. Why are you anxious, oh, you of little faith? See, Jesus says anxiety is a state of functional faithlessness. Functional faithlessness. Let me describe what that means. I'm not talking about faithlessness in the sense that you have zero faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's not, it's not, not a salvic, salvific faith that I'm talking about. For some of you, it might be. Some of you who don't know Jesus yet, that might be the case. But if you're a Christian, anxiety doesn't mean that you don't have a salvific faith in Jesus, a saving faith in Jesus. It means that in that particular moment, there is a a weakness, an absence of faith to actually trust Jesus as who he says he is. Now, this is the state of everybody. Everybody is functionally an unbeliever. We can just get that out of the way. Like there's not like these elite Christians who don't struggle with any sort of faithlessness or, or any sort of doubt or any sort of wrestling in that regard. Everybody, every Christian is gonna struggle with this. Everybody's gonna have a faith crisis, if not every day, if not at some point in your day. But Jesus says that this functional faithlessness of anxiety at its core is caused by two different things, wrong thinking and wrong priorities. Those are the two things. And Jesus wants to get underneath the heart and show us. So what he's doing here, as we come to this passage where he's talking about, hey, look at the birds. Look at the the lilies of the field and the grass that grows. Jesus is addressing our faith dysfunction by grounding us in reality. Do you see how natural, like how physical this is? Where Jesus says, hey, look up. Look at the sky. Look down at the ground. Now there's some other places where we can go. But Jesus is saying right here, look and observe what's in front of your eyes. Look look what's physically present in front of you and observe it. Not just to look and say, okay, yeah, I see birds but to observe the birds, to ponder about the lilies of the field that are are more beautiful than King Solomon in all his splendor. Jesus says, thoughtfully observe God's care for things that are comparatively insignificant than you. And if God thinks of the birds and cares for the birds, if God thinks of the lilies of the flower that are just gonna be here one day and dead dead the next, How much greater is his care and love and concern for you? She says, look. 
Now this is critical. This is critical to understand because right here we get a definition of faith that is not an absence of thinking. Christian theo- or Christian, uh, the Christian should be the most thoughtful person in the city. Like faith in Jesus doesn't mean turn off your mind. Like faith in Jesus opens up our mind to greater horizons. It's not an absence of thinking. It's not a matter of closing your eyes and blindly jumping in. In fact, that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is a matter of turning your eyes off to reality. Do you see this? To, to neglect and don't look at the birds, to don't look at the flowers. Anxiety requires you to close your eyes to reality and be blind, and instead of listening to God and looking at his creation, what you do is let your thoughts and your feelings that are going on internally run amok, and it drives you to worst-case scenario after worst-case scenario. See, that, that's blind faith. That, you gotta turn off your eyes to do that. But on the contrary, faith sees clearly. Faith thinks clearly. It clings to the true reality of God's creation and ultimately to God's word. I'm convinced that there's no other way to deal to, in a meaningful way with anxiety than going to God's word. I think like the cheesy truisms that people tend to, you know, like pat each other on the back with just seem so insufficient in dealing with what real anxiety is. I, see it on, I saw it on Facebook this week. One of my friends posted, you know, I'm, I'm really having a hard time. I don't know if I have any worth. I don't, you know, he's like, it's one of those posts that makes you, if you're close to him, reach out and call and say, hey, are you doing all right, brother? And in the comments section below, it was just a bunch of people like, pat him, hey, you're so nice, you're so kind, you're so this, you're so, you know, like trying to be affirming, but in a way that is very unhelpful. And the only way that we can actually find a a meaningful solution is if we go to God's word. That's the only way to deal with, with the reality of anxiety because it takes us away from the illusions that we tend to put up and drives us into reality. And primarily, the, the thing, the, the main cadence of the Bible is to see God as the sovereign Lord, right? From, from Genesis to Revelation, it's pointing to the reality that God is in control, God has power, he controls all things, all things are for him, all things are to glorify him. Points to God as the center character. Now, this itself doesn't necessarily remedy our anxiety. I don't, not, I don't think so. Just, just knowing that God is the sovereign Lord doesn't guarantee that my anxieties are gonna peel out because the reality is that we have so many misconceptions about who God is that surround this idea about God as the sovereign Lord that'll actually be counterproductive instead of leading us to a non-anxious life. Right, you, you might... And, and if you're honest, I mean, if you, if you don't settle for the Sunday school answers, you, can, you could really open yourself up to some honesty here, and you might say that, you know, honestly, I think God is, he's withholding. He's holding something back from me. Or I think that God's aloof. That he's distant, he's far, like, he pays attention to other people, but not really to me. Or have the sense that God's sort of just tolerating me. Like, he just kind of has this constant state of displeasure. 
where nothing I do, like no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I try to live a righteous life and to avoid sin and, and know that, stay away from the stuff that I know that God says is gonna tank my life, I fail and I just know that he's displeased with me. If not, some of you might, might even more intensify. Like you think of God as like Sid from Toy Story. You know what I'm talking about? Just mean and cruel. Right? He's out to get you. And so we think, you know, when Jesus says, hey, look, your heaven, think of your heavenly father and how he cares for the birds and the lilies. And we think, well, he, he might be somebody's heavenly father. I don't necessarily feel like he's mine. Or if, he's, or if he is my heavenly father, I definitely feel like an unwanted stepkid. See, all of these misconceptions affect our anxiety. Now, Jesus wants to unearth the lies about God and replace them with truth about God. He goes in to uh, change these misconceptions and he do, does it by saying, hey, go look at the birds, go look at the grass in verses 26 and 28. He says, if he's gonna care for these things that are relatively insignificant, how much more, if you're more valuable to God because you're created in the image of God, for starters, how much more will he provide for you? Now this is where we come to the doctrine of providence, that God takes care of his creation. God provides for his creatures. Now this doesn't mean that we can just sit back and slough off. Like the birds go and they collect, right? The, the provision is out there, but, but there's this effort that they put forth. So, so that means God is providing for us through our job, maybe it's through charity, through it's our own skill. God is providing because he's giving us the resources that we need to get what we need. And in doing so, God provides, this is his providence, he sustains and provides for his creation from, from the least significant to the most significant. But providence goes beyond provisions. It isn't just that God gives us the stuff that we need. God ordains everything in a way that is part of his plan. Now, there, there's no other place to go to besides scripture to come to this conclusion. Because what it tells us is that God is so in control that nothing slips by him without his knowledge of it. So, so that means that God controls what comes at us. Now this isn't fate where we just sort of sit back and let it all happen to us and we have no part in it. No, God actually is able to use our decisions, to use our actions in a way that brings about his will. God works through those things, so we're responsible in that regard. But what God does is when he flexes and shows us his power, he shows us how he uses all things for the good of those who love him, Romans 8. See, this is the power of God. This is the provision of God. This is the providence of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God only allows a good, good things to happen to his people. Like, you'd have to eliminate nearly all of the Bible to come to that conclusion. Because you read scriptures and you see a lot of bad stuff happens to most of God's people. That's a reality. Bad things are gonna happen. Hard things are gonna come. But the promise is not that God will keep those things away. The promise is that God can take those hard things and transform them to what we're meant to destroy you and to push you down and take them and use them for your good. Nobody else can do that. Now, there, there are a couple of scenarios where you see this, okay? First of all, you see the Apostle Paul, he's preaching the gospel. People hate him, like the religious leaders of the day hate him. They throw him in jail. He's like, that'll shut him up. Well, guess what happens? 
God places Paul in a jail cell and he converts the jailer and now he goes home and he's making disciples. Or look at Joseph. Go back to the Old Testament. His brothers sold him into slavery. They hated him, sold him into slavery. A lot of hard stuff happened when he got sold into slavery. A lot of good stuff, then bad stuff, good stuff, then bad stuff. And eventually as Joseph comes down to the end of his life, he says, listen brothers, he's somehow reconciled with them. Not somehow, God reconciles them. And, and, and Joseph says, hey, I, I realize this. What you intended for evil, God intended for my good. And because Joseph was brought to this place of realization, he was then able to help other people for the good of other people. Now, and, until you understand both the power and the care of God, your anxiety is going to prevail in your life. Until you understand that God actually has the power to take hard things and turn them into good things, you'll still be anxious. And instead of surrendering, you'll continue to try to grapple for more power, for more control. See, when you understand the goodness, the care, the power of God, that leads you to a place of surrender. Now what makes it even easier for us to come to that place, that that place of surrender where it's like, my hands are open, what I have is yours, use me, do with me what you will. That's, That's the voice of surrender. What makes it easier to come to that place is knowing that God knows what we need. That God is attentive, that's what verse 32 is pointing at. It's like he closed all of these things, or he closed the fields with these lilies. He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need already. See, God isn't aloof. He's in tune with you on a moment-by-moment basis, and you are not overlooked. See, in other words, God not only cares for you, Right, and we can go to, to 1 Peter chapter five, which says, cast your anxieties on him for God cares for you. But this type of care that God has for you isn't like a, you know, where he gives you a hearts up emoji or whatever when you post on Facebook, give you the, the double tap on Instagram to say, yeah, I care about that. No, no, the care that God has for you is so robust, so profound, that is actually an expression of love, that he has a love for you. Now what we don't realize is that anxiety oftentimes is an accusatory statement toward God. The anxiety that we're feeling can easily be, not all the time, but oftentimes can be this this accusatory statement, God, you don't love me. You don't care for me. You don't have my best interests in mind. And so what do we do? We resort back to self-care. We take control. I can do it myself. You don't have my back, God. I got my own back. Now to see how false that is, how delusional that is, all we have to do is look at Jesus. So it's one thing to look at the birds of the field, to look at the flowers. But at some point, you have to come and look at Jesus, the object of our faith. Not just the demonstration of why God is faithful, but the object of our faith. Our eyes have to lock on Jesus and see. And and if God didn't withhold his own son and sending him to the cross to pay for our sin, to pay the price for what our sin accomplished and creating this constantly anxious self that we're wrestling with, if God didn't withhold his son from, from providing the solution to this, why would God withhold anything lesser from us? Do you get that? 
Why would God withhold anything lesser if he gave us his treasure, his grand prize in Christ? Now, the only way that you can miss this is if you're embedded in a material world. The only way that you can miss this, if your eyes are so, so glossed over by the, the material, the food, the drink, what we eat, what we wear, that you completely miss Jesus. See, that's what Jesus says. Look, is not life more than this? See, what has to happen is a shift in priorities, a shift from the material world into the kingdom world which is both physical and spiritual. So don't, don't get me tripping here on this thing like, oh, yeah, you want me to, you know, clouds and stuff, harps and, no, no, no. Like, the kingdom is both physical and spiritual. This is why Jesus says, here, here's the remedy, the priority problem. So, so that was our wrong thinking. Now here's the priority problem. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek what? First. Seek first, that's, that's priority language. Now, not just in a matter of, su- like, in, in subsequential order. So I, like, I give 25% of my time thinking about the kingdom of God, 25% of my budget, 25% of my kids, right? No, 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 think first. This is a, a, a completely prioritized way of thinking. Like, all of my life is, is the kingdom of heaven. This priority shift is so thorough that it encapsulates all of my life. This is why C.S. Lewis says, I told you I had C.S. Lewis for days, guys. C.S. Lewis it says, aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll miss them both. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Why? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and it will be added to you. This is the shift that we have to make. A shift in thinking, a shift in priorities, so that we would place ourselves before the truth of the scriptures the truth of the gospel, the truth and the reality of the kingdom of God. Now you have two choices walking away from here this morning. That's it, you only have two choices. Like either this is true and it demands your faith and obedience to it or you dismiss it as false. There's no middle ground here. You have two options. You either think I'm competent enough, I'm obviously not competent enough to say competent. You're either competent enough to run your own life Push God away. Say, I don't need you, God. I got this. Right? Which, which is ultimately blind faith. Because consistently, the track record of it, it's not working in your favor. Like, this is the word insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Like, this is not logical. So the first option, be, be, think of yourself competent enough. Get, get enough pride in yourself to say, I don't need God, I got this. Or your eyes are supernaturally open to see that God is who he says he is. That God, in fact, is not just Lord, but Savior and Father. When we believe the gospel, we move deeper and deeper into surrender. Those are two options, rebellion or surrender. And it's not a surrender just to get inside of the gate. Like if this were the threshold of the kingdom of heaven and I just get one inch inside and that's it, I've surrendered enough. But, But the surrender that Jesus is after is a whole life surrender. 
And as we surrender ourselves more and more to the lordship, to the care, to the provision, to the glorious will of our God, the more we come alive, the more anxiety peels out of our life. Why? Because it's dealing with the heart issue. It's going to the foundational problem of who am I trusting in, myself or God? When we make that decision, we cling to Jesus. The birds and the lilies are helpful. It's a, spe- it's, it's a common grace that God puts out in front of us. But the special grace of Jesus that frees us from our sins, that unbinds us to our fallen state, we cling to him as both Savior and Lord. And we turn to the God who is full of power and of love and know that he provides not just what we need to get to heaven, but to live a kingdom life now, that he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness to not live an anxiety-filled life, but to live an anxiety-reduced life. And even more so, a non-anxious life. Now you can't do this alone, you can't, it's impossible. You take this sermon home, and one or two things, you're either gonna disagree with me a lot and try to dismiss it, or you're gonna try and you're gonna fail and then you're just gonna get overwhelmed. The way that you wrestle with anxiety is within the context of community. Now that might pro- pro- provoke some sort of anxiety in yourself, right? Oh, I've gotta be real with people, I gotta tell them what I'm really like. No, th- th- this, is, this is the blessing of gospel community. It's like the freedom to be vulnerable, the freedom to share weakness so that your brothers and sisters who love you can point you deeper and deeper into the reality of, G- of the gospel. Put you further and further into the arms of Jesus to trust and surrender even more. And guess what? This is what happens. This is the spillover, the bubble effect. That if a church starts to embody this non-anxious presence, right? if, if we can start speaking truth and love to one another and reminding us of how deeply our Father cares for us, This non-anxious church now is implanted in different pockets within our society, within our culture, within our city. That we can have an influence on being a non-anxious presence that points people to Jesus, where they would actually have to ask, hey, why isn't that your your undies aren't in a bundle? It's actually because because of Jesus. I can trust Jesus. That whatever comes. I just think back, okay, I can stop. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you show us both in nature, in the physical reality of how how you provide for your creation, but even more so in your word, that you've not left us in the dark, that your word helps us to see you clearly, helps us to see ourselves clearly, helps us to make sense of the world that we're in. God, and it it gives us a hope for the future, that one day, anxiety will be a non-factor in our lives. As we sit and behold the glory of Jesus in the new heavens and new earth, anxiety will become a a non-reality. We long for that day. God, purge us now of that. Cleanse our souls. Make us quick to faith. Give us the spirit that that prompts us that that when we're acting in functional faithlessness to push us deeper and deeper into the gospel of Jesus. Make us willing to go there. Give us hearts of surrender ready to accept and receive. God, we can't do this on our own. We need your help. We need you. We need your spirit to do this work in our hearts, Father. Would you, would you move us in this direction? Help us to cling to Jesus. Create us to be a, a peaceful presence, a non-anxious people, people who are 
are so wrapped up in the reality of the kingdom of heaven and living that life now that nothing, nothing can pull us into this sense of of worry, of anxiety. Our trust is firm in Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name.